Okay, if you'll turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 1 as we begin a new study together through another book in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel, as we saw looking at it together, really predominantly was a record of really the ascension of the first king of Israel, Saul, of course, and really sadly watching Saul's reign uh, unravel uh, rather quickly. Saul had a good beginning uh, initially, though it ultimately was the people themselves who longed for and desired a king. God gave them their desire, gave them a king according to what they desired like the other nations but of course the downfall of that is ultimately Saul uh, was not particularly the the man who had a heart that God wanted uh, them ultimately to experience which we'll see that David had for them as the shepherd king of Israel who Second Samuel focuses on and we saw very early on that uh, Saul began to disobey the Lord wasn't listening to the Lord's voice and ultimately came to a place where God told him uh, that the, the throne and the kingdom was going to be taken away from him and God said that he was going to give it to someone else, uh, to someone that he had chosen, a, a man who had a heart after the Lord, young David. And we saw Samuel the prophet go and anoint David. And then from that point, we watched this process of Saul sort of uh, unraveling and struggling and deteriorating more and more. This process, it wasn't instantaneous that God took the throne away from him. It was a process of, of gradual deterioration. Uh, and, and David, in the midst of that, went through a process of... Of, of preparation as God for about a 10 year process we saw was taking David through experiences uh, allowing him to experience hardships and challenges and through all of that certainly God was developing him and there was a necessary process of building character into David's life giving David the heart that God wanted him to have uh, so that he could be the, the proper king that God intended for his people. Uh, and as we leave off the end of 1 Samuel, we see the end of Saul's life. And now 2 Samuel really focuses upon really the calling of God in David's life to become the king of Israel. Coming to fruition, we see now the ascension of David to the throne as Saul has now been removed by God as he's died and David now ascending to the throne gradually but but very clearly and then really we look at the reign of King David predominantly in the book of 2 Samuel and we see as well that David was not a perfect man uh, David had his fair share of mistakes and shortcomings he was a man at best and really had even some major uh, moral mistakes that he made but yet there are great lessons to learn throughout as we predominantly focus in this book on the life of David uh, now that he becomes uh, the king of Israel. So if you'll begin with me here in, in verse 1, we pick up, as I said, sort of 1 Samuel ends with the death of Saul. And that, of course, marks the fact that now he's been removed. The throne is vacant. And now God can bring David into that place where he ought to be. But we read in verse 1, it came to pass after the death of Saul which we saw in the last chapter of 1 Samuel, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites and David had stayed two days in Ziklag. So two things the Bible is referring us to here. First of all, David and his men had now come back to Ziklag. Remember, that was the territory in Philistine country where David went, unfortunately, for a 16-month time period and really was uh, in a place really somewhat of a, of a compromised condition, a, almost a backslidden state, we could fairly say. And as the result of that, found himself out in the battle, really, that became the battle that, that became the 
catalyst for the death of King Saul. And David would have been participating in that had God not intervened and, remember, sent David away. But when David went back to Ziklag, we saw, remember, that he found the territory burned with fire. The wives and the children had been taken away captive by the Amalekites. David, after a moment of repentance and drawing strength from the Lord, rallied his troops. They went and by the grace of God recovered, it says, all. They recovered their families. They recovered their property. Even more than that, they regained more than they began with. David is now going back uh, to the location where they were in Ziklag. Uh, but Saul, at the same time, has also died in that battle in that short course of time uh, as David was traveling back and then pursuing the Amalekites to recoup what they had stolen away from his family. So these two things now are sort of coming together and, and kind of culminating at the same time. And, and, you know, you begin to realize when you read the Bible, as you see what's in the scripture, as well as in our own lives, that a lot of times this is kind of what happens. When the plan of God is coming together, a lot of times there are... Different circumstances that kind of culminate at the same time. I don't know about you, but as I watch, I begin to recognize more and more that God's always kind of doing more things uh, than one at the same time. And he's working over here and in this situation and with this particular person or group of people. And he's also got something going on here. And, and he just has this marvelous way of then coordinating the timetables and all those things kind of coming to, together. And, and so that's kind of what we see happening here. We're going to see David. It, now the throne is vacant, which means he can ascend to the throne. He can answer the call of God. He wouldn't take Saul out himself. But God has now done it and done it very thoroughly. But David doesn't know yet. He's just returned to Ziklag. He's not aware that Saul has been killed in battle. And this is how he now finds out. Verse 2 says, It was on the third day, behold, that it happened, that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. Now, again, in the ancient culture, much more demonstrative uh, in many ways in the way they would express themselves. And this was just a way as they would tear their clothes and, and put dust upon themselves. This was typically a, a picture of mourning, of deep grief, you know, as they would tear their clothes, uh, the idea of, of tearing their clothes. You know, we, we may say something like maybe when something horrible happens, we say, oh man, this is just like, it's tearing my heart out. Or we say something like, I feel like my heart is just torn in shreds. Uh, over what's happened and, and we kind of make those uh, type of descriptions of what well this was the idea is they would rent their clothes and put dust upon themselves it was a way of outwardly indicating that they were deeply grieving over something something very troubling had happened that caused them to want to manifest that in an outward way to those who they were among and so it was as this man now comes this stranger from Saul's camp clothes torn dust on his head that when he came to David he fell to the ground and prostrated himself, again, indicating that something very serious has taken place as he falls down before David there in his camp. And David said to him, where have you come from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. So David senses that something's wrong here he's returned from the the camp of a battle that david knew that though he had been graciously excused from by god had just taken place between the philistines and israel so he realizes this man has serious news he's come from the camp of king saul and the people of israel he says what's going on he says please t tell me and he said to david in answer the people have fled from the battle 
Many of the people are fallen and dead, so that's bad news. The Israelites have taken a great loss. They're retreating. Many have perished in the battle. And then these words came forth, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. And again, we have to put ourselves in David's sandals here. We just read that. But understand, after all the history, always been going through, those statements must have dropped like a ton of bricks on David's heart when he heard that. Number one, that Jonathan, David's beloved, close, best friend, we saw that in the book of 1 Samuel, this incredible companionship these two had. It says their, their souls were knit together. I mean, there, there was just this camaraderie and this divine bond that God formed between David and Jonathan where there was just this uh, incredible friendship they had developed, like a brotherhood, just a camaraderie. They shared their lives, they supported, and it was just a deep bond and friendship. And they had always spoken about, even as they realized, Jonathan did, that the throne was going to be taken away from his father Saul and given to David, that Jonathan was not going to ascend to the throne. That would be typical that would be what Saul would want because Saul, remember, refused to let go of the throne even though he knew God was dethroning him. He, to the bitter end, held on and held on and held on until God pried his fingers off ultimately and, and removed him circumstantially through death. But Jonathan knew that he was not going to be the next king of Israel and that David was the chosen anointed king by God's spirit. And Jonathan and David, because they had the love and the friendship they did, Jonathan had a great respect for David and they would speak about how someday when David ascended to the throne, how no doubt they would serve together and how Jonathan would be there by his side and wouldn't be embittered or angry or jealous that David took over the throne, but that he wanted to be by David's side and, and help him and support him and, and how David wouldn't, in a sense, look at him like a typical you know, descendant of a prior king that was a threat to the throne because typically if, if someone uh, took over a throne, if there were any descendants from the prior king, you would execute them culturally in that day because you didn't want them to try and come along and sort of take over the throne or try and get back into power the family dynasty so these two no doubt had this great future they look forward to they haven't spoken in quite some time because david had been pushed remember out into the wilderness and for for david to hear these words that his close friend jonathan has perished in battle that must have just grieved david's heart i mean to get news that your best friend has died in battle that you've just lost someone who's one of the most important people in your life some of you have gotten those words before you've heard some of us have heard that news before whether it was your spouse who was your best friend and and just the words the, the finality the permanency of of hearing that they're dead that they finally deceased i mean those, those are hard words to to hear in, in the human ears and that that impact us like a ton of bricks on our heart when someone we care about deeply has experienced death. And add on to that, he also hears now that Saul is dead. And David also knows what that means because for 10 years, for 10 years, he's been subjected to trouble. And just, I mean, Saul has been a relentless, has he not? We saw together, if you studied with us in 1 Samuel, a relentless enemy of David 
trying to assassinate him, chasing him, persecuting him, making David's life miserable, making him live in caves and, and wilderness and, and, and all of these horrible things. And David, multiple times, remember, could have, if he chose to take matters into his own hand, he could have killed Saul prematurely. He could have put Saul to death. And multiple times, remember, David refrained and said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. If God gave him the throne, even if he has violated everything he's supposed to be doing, and even if he is doing everything wrong, if God gave him the throne, then it is God's business to dethrone him. It is God's role to take the throne away from him. And so David would not push or try and make it happen. And he knew that it would come to the fact that someday God would remove Saul circumstantially. And now he hears these words again as the anointed king of Israel, knowing from the day Samuel anointed him with oil that this is the calling of God for his life. And now he hears David, the throne's vacant. David, it's finally come to pass. God has removed Saul. Saul has now died. The throne is vacant. And now all of a sudden, David's mind must be going through the gears thinking, so, so, so what's going to happen now? And what's next? And what's going to... So the culmination of this lifelong calling is finally coming to pass. And, and that's, again, another very overwhelming experience when maybe something you've been waiting for, waiting for, waiting for, waiting for. God's been preparing and training and taking you through seasons. Then all of a sudden, it just crescendos. And you realize now, oy vey, it's happening now. That happens sometimes when you stand at the altar after being single for a while. You go, oy vey, I was praying for this and praying for this and praying. Then you look at them, you know, two people who've been dying to get married. And then you're looking at them on that wedding day and you realize they are like excited but paranoid because they realize this is really happening now. This is really happening. And David now realizes this is really happening now. Saul has died. So this news comes incredible overwhelming news verse 5 says so david said to the young man who told him how do you know that saul and jonathan his son are dead again in that day you you can't just take someone's word for certainly something that serious and important so he says what proof do you have how do i know this is accurate intelligence from the battlefield how, how can you assure me that this is true is this just hearsay and listen whenever something important Certainly something like that. Is the king dead? Is your best friend dead? I mean, whenever it's important information, I highly recommend, don't just go by hearsay. Get proof. Validate something. You know, one of the biggest mistakes human beings make, and Christians are just as much guilty, is too often we just go by, well, I heard. Somebody said, well, I think what's going on. No, no. Verify it, validate it, make sure that it's true before you go, you know, somehow jumping into action in regards. So he says, how can, can you be sure? How do you know? Well, verse six, the man says, I was an eyewitness. I can, I can validate it for you. I was actually present. He says, the young man who told him said, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, remember the Bible tells us that's where Saul and his uh, armor bearer, that's where they died at, last chapter of 1 Samuel 31 said, there was Saul leaning on his spear, supporting himself. And indeed, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now, when he looked behind him, he saw me and he called out to me and answered. And I answered him, here I am. And he said, Saul said to me, who are you? So he answered, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me again, please stand over me and kill me. For anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. 
So I stood over him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. So apparently when he came to David, he had Saul's crown uh, and he also had a, a special bracelet that the king would have worn as again, you know, physical proof to try and validate this. So he, here we have this story that is told now to David by this messenger of how he could validate Obviously, he had the crown and the bracelet there, but he tells us, listen, I just happened to be near Mount Gilboa, and when I was there, I stumbled upon Saul, and Saul, I could tell he was mortally wounded, he was in bad shape, and he spoke to me, and he basically asked me to help end his life. He said to me, listen, I've been severely wounded. Uh, and he says, you know, uh, please stand over me. Verse nine, anguish has come upon me, but life still remains. In other words, he was saying, look, he was in, he was on the very you know, threat of death, but he was still in incredible anguish and he just wanted to be put out of his misery. So I, I figured he's asking, he's the king. It's a mercy killing. Uh, let me put him out of his misery. And so I put him out of his misery and I put him to death as he asked me to because I was sure he wouldn't live anyway. And he says, and then I took his crown and his bracelet and I brought it here to you. Now, understand, in this situation, this Amalekite, as he comes to David, he thinks that as he comes to David with this news and with the crown and with the bracelet, no doubt, either way, he thinks that this is going to be good news to David. He thinks that David would be happy about this. Again, knowing the dynamic, Saul was his kind of you know arch enemy and all the hassles David had been put through because of Saul's hatred of him and chasing him all around Israel. Now here comes someone from Saul's camp and he's thinking as I go tell David this news, uh, this is going to make David feel wonderful and, and he probably honestly is potentially even going to reward me as I look, I finished off your enemy for you and hey, here's the crown because you're the guy that's supposed to wear it. And here's a bracelet to go along with that. Now, as we read this story, especially if you were with us just together last time, it almost sounds like there's a potential contradiction there because we read at the end of chapter 31 that the Bible recorded for us that Saul, in the midst of battle, was hit, remember, by archers and he was badly wounded. And then it says that in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, he turned to his armor bearer and said to his armor bearer, please, Rather than these Philistines capture me and torture me and degrade and humiliate me, please just kill me. That he asked his armor bearer to do that. Put me out of my misery. His armor bearer wouldn't do that, the Bible says. So then it says, remember, Saul, it said, fell on his sword. And then it said, his armor bearer, seeing that Saul was dead, then did the same thing. He then committed suicide and died next to his king there. So the question becomes this. One of two things are happening here. Either what is given to us here, I don't see a contradiction. I see a, just a complimentary story. One of two things have transpired here. Either when Saul fell on his sword after he had already been mortally wounded by archers, you want to talk about a long, painful process, that he was already mortally wounded from the archers. He then fell on his sword and his armor bearer, perceiving that Saul was dead, thinking that guy's gone and maybe not there checking his pulse and doing everything that he was just within distance. He just assumed he's already badly wounded. Now he just fell on a sword. He's dead. I'm dying with him. And the reality was is that potentially he wasn't completely dead. It wasn't there a movie years ago. He's not dead. He's mostly dead. Wasn't there a movie like that? Or and, and, and Saul was almost dead. He was mostly dead. 
But there was something in him that, that was still you know, straining. And as this Amalekite came by and realized that, that the king was badly wounded, but was there leaning on a spear and still alive, that Saul, perhaps with gasping breast, whispered to him, please, you know, the anguish hasn't left me, put me out of my misery. And it could be that this Amalekite, this is the compilation of the full story, then was the final one to put him to death uh, by slaying him at, at Saul's request to do that. And that's a possibility. It's very likely that that's what's being described here. The other possibility, and I don't think we can be dogmatic either way and commentators dispute which it is, the other possibility is it could just be that this Amalekite is fabricating the story here. It could be that he's just making up this story that this is what happened because the Amalekite people remember, I mean, they were known to be just a, a you know, they were kind of like, they were kind of like vultures, you know, as people. They were known to find people who were weak and, and fallen behind the ranks and prey upon them. They were just a very wicked, nomadic people who were known even at times to go in. And, and when there were dead bodies laying on the ground after two armies would have conflict to then go in and just to steal things off of the dead corpses and off of people. They were known for this historically. So it could be that this Amalekite, true to his nature, though he was with somehow serving among the ranks of the, you know, one of the armies, saw King Saul there and recognized, hey, this is an opportunity to capitalize on a situation. I'm going to take his crown. I'm going to take his bracelet. And then I'm going to go track down David, son of Jesse, because I know he's supposed to be the next king. And if I go bring this crown to him and so forth, this will thrill him. His enemy is dead and I'm bringing him his crown. Who knows? I mean, he'll probably richly reward me. He might even give me a place maybe in his cabinet or something. And so maybe he made up this story of, of how he did this thinking David will be really glad that I finished off his enemy for him. And he'll be like, wow, you're, you took out my enemy for me and you brought me the crown. I mean, here's a rich reward. Whether he truly did that or he's just making up a story that he did that, he thinks that David is going to be glad about this. Now, the reality is it's going to be the exact opposite. I mean, this, as we read it, please understand, is one of the greatest testimonies, the fact of that David does not hold on to bitterness. You would think David would, would be, that's why logical thinking, the Amalekite was thinking that, would be thrilled, but that's not what happens. Look what it goes on to tell us in verse 11. Therefore, David took hold of his own clothes when he heard this story, and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And verse 12, they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan, his son. Well, for Jonathan, I understand. That was his best friend. But for Jonathan and his son, for the people of the Lord in the house of Israel, the whole army, because they had fallen by the sword. So instead of David in any way being happy about the death of his enemy or, or this story, David instantly just goes into a total experience of grief. He begins to mourn, not only for Jonathan, for all the people of Israel, but for even Saul himself. And can I just say, like, that's hard for me in my selfish humanity to wrap my brain around. I mean, if I'm sorry, I am not as spiritual as David. If after 10 years of what I was subjected to by King Saul, there would probably be a little part of me that would kind of want to at least say zippity doo -dah or something. I mean, just something little, but yet David is the complete opposite of that. He shows a heart that doesn't nurse grudges. He's not holding on to what, 
Did bad things happen to David? Did, did, did Saul do wrong things to David? Yeah, but apparently David experienced it and he processed it and he let it go. And he didn't just hold it and nurse it and, and just let it sink roots down into a system because if that was the case, you should see right now an incredibly bitter man just coming to the surface rejoicing that finally his enemy has been put to death. And you see the opposite. He's, he's grieved, he's saddened over the death of Saul, over the loss that that is, not only for you know, Saul's family, but notice he's worried because of the loss of all of Israel. Again, this shows that he just had a heart of a leader too because he realized these people in Israel just lost their king. They just lost their leader. And I don't care who the leader is. When any people suffer the loss of a leader, that devastates the people. That's a hard thing to recover from. And David's heart here, rather than rejoicing, he's mourning, they're grieving. And then verse 13 says, and then he said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he said, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. Now, let me just say something briefly too. If indeed this was true, that this Amalekite was the one who finished off Saul, and literally this story is true, a true account he's telling, and he was the one that put Saul to death, how very interesting that it was an Amalekite that put Saul to death ultimately. First of all, because if you remember, Saul's biggest grievous mistake early on was God told him to what, eradicate the Amalekite people and Saul did not fully obey and he kept some of the best alive and he disobeyed God's command. It wasn't complete obedience. And now, because he was not willing to severely remove what God asked him to remove that was dangerous and detrimental, now that has resurfaced. And interestingly enough, because he didn't deal with it and remove it the way God told him, so now it's an actual Amalekite that comes back, resurfaces, and puts an end to Saul's life. And the Amalekites, for that reason, and throughout passages in the Scripture, are an incredibly fitting picture of the flesh. Because God tells us to do one thing with our sinful flesh, our carnal nature, and that is to crucify the flesh. Not to compromise with it, not to put most of it to death and, and leave a little part of it alive. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm going to crucify most of my flesh, but this one area, I need to give it a little bit of opportunity. It just, it just needs to have a little bit of life and experience. And if we leave a little bit of something alive that God is saying, this is dangerous, you need to put it to death, you need to eradicate this from your... Well, I mean, I'm going to... Most of it, but this little... This one area of sin or compromise, I mean, I, I just... That one's okay. I'm just going to leave it in my life. Listen, those are famous last words because that very thing will then rise up and what you do not conquer and put to death in your life typically will rise up and ultimately it will conquer and destroy you. I've seen it happen more than once in people's lives. And here, how sad that it's an Amalekite, if so, that was the one that put Saul to death in the same way our flesh can rise up and have deadly consequences in our lives if we don't deal with it. Perhaps it may be time down the road, but it will ultimately happen. So David said to him, hearing this, how was it, here comes the reproof now, how was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. And then David called one of his young men and said to him, go near and execute him. Bring about judicial execution for this violation of putting to death the king. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, your blood is on your own head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, 
I have killed the Lord's anointed. So David's not thrilled about what this man did. David wasn't looking to reward him. He wasn't looking to celebrate in what happened to Saul. David had such strong convictions about this reality that this is God's sovereign control and rulership and we are not to push beyond what God's role and responsibility is to violate God's authority, to take matters in our own hands. David says to him, he's thinking he's going to reward, he says, how is it that you, he says, verse uh, 14 there, were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And I almost sense David here kind of thinking to himself, perhaps as he's giving this reproof, listen, I'm the anointed king of Israel. And I didn't put forth my hand to kill the Lord's anointed. You can almost sense David's thinking to himself, if there were anybody that you think God would justify putting to death King Saul so that I could send, ascend to the throne, which rightfully belonged to me anyway by God's choosing, a little bit sooner, a day quicker, if anybody would be the one to be justified in doing that, you would think of me, and I didn't even do that, David would say. I didn't touch the Lord's anointed. I didn't put forth my hand and try and make something happen sooner than it was supposed to or force it to come to pass or make it happen by my efforts of the flesh because I had reverence for God's sovereignty and God's authority to do things his way. And he says, how is it you had no fear? And so David here severely takes this matter very seriously, puts him to death, executes this man, for what he has done. And then verse 17 again, look at it. And then David lamented, further reference to grieving, mourning, with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he told him to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jashir. So David continues to lament, again, not rejoicing in the failure of his enemy. You know, this is a, a very, I think, good illustration. Let me read you Proverbs 24, this account here in, in 2 Samuel 1. It tells us this in Proverbs 24. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and it displease him and he turn his wrath away from him. Isn't it interesting that the Bible actually has to tell us that? Don't rejoice when your enemy falls. You know, in our lives at times, there are people who, you know, they kind of become like, you know, enemies to us in a personal way and some things happen, hurts, and, 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 and we recognize, Lord, would you deal with them? Would you deal with them? And then maybe perhaps ultimately, God in his timing and in his way, he deals with that person and, and there's a part of us because we are so sick and twisted that then when God deals with them, we, we kind of, we enjoy it. We, we kind of almost like watching them fall and stumble and struggle and, and fall flat on their, fa and, and we're thinking, yeah, that's finally, thank you, finally. And, and, and we're just kind of rejoicing and God says, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't rejoice, God says, when your enemy falls and let your heart be glad when someone else stumbles. That, maybe they do need to be dealt with, but God says, that's not something you should celebrate in. Because quite frankly, there may be times when we need to be dealt with. Do you want somebody to chuckle and rejoice and, and think it's really awesome when you fail, when you fall, and when God has to humble you or discipline you? So he says, don't do that. He says, lest the Lord see it and it displease him. Instead, the Bible tells us that love covers a multitude of sins and, and, and we should be saddened and grieved that it had to come to that. That person had to go to that place where God had to deal with them so severely. That should be the, the hard attitude. Again, that's the Christ-like attitude. When Jesus came into Jerusalem 
it says as he saw them in their condition, it says he was weeping, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he was weeping, he was grieved over their condition, not celebrating the fact that they had failed as people. So here David, as he's lamenting, actually puts together like a, a funeral dirge, like a song. He, he composes one of many songs David did, a song to remember King Saul and his son Jonathan. And he told the people to teach this song, verse 18 says, uh, to the children. Isn't it interesting? To teach young children a song, to help them remember and recount certain truths. There's something very powerful about music. When things are set to song, set to poetry and music, there's something really valuable because there's something about music. It, it, you ever notice it's kind of like got glue attached to it. I mean, you can struggle to remember certain things. You can try so hard and you can't memorize it and remember it. But then what happens? You just hear a song driving into work and all of a sudden it's like a jingle in your head and you find yourself like singing a song. Now, where did that come from? Because music and poetry just has a way of sticking with us. That's why music is such a powerful medium for good and also for bad and why we got to be careful. So David says, teach this song. Teach it to the children lest they always remember in an honorable way King Saul and his son Jonathan and record it in the book of Jasher. That was referenced in Joshua chapter 10 as well, the book of Jasher, probably a, a book of poetry or songs in some way that was composed in ancient Israel, which we don't have record of. And this is what it is. It's a song which is basically like a eulogy, just speaking well of them. He says, the beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Now, I could see David saying that about Jonathan. That's really hard to hear David say that about King Saul. The beauty of Israel, the mighty have fallen. Again, but you notice what David's doing here? He's honoring King Saul's life. Even though King Saul had a lot of issues, had done a lot of wrong things, he still is speaking well of him and honoring his life. Now, I'll tell you, one of the things... You know, I'm old enough to, to recognize where I'm at in my life. One of the things that we're continuing to lose generation by generation is just the common respect towards humanity and just being able to honor people. You know, when, when a funeral happens, for example, and I've done many, many funerals, believers, unbelievers, you know, gang situations, I mean, you name it, people cussing each other out in the middle of a funeral. So, I mean, things that I wouldn't like to, to speak about. But, but when somebody is at a funeral service and they do this thing called a eulogy, the word eulogy just means to speak well of. That's what the term actually means. It means to speak well of. And sometimes you almost have to remind people in the midst of that setting, especially if it's a sensitive situation, listen, I don't care what the history is here. I don't care what the background is here. I don't care who this person is or what they did. Their life had some value on this planet. No matter what they did or what happened or what that that was somebody's son, that was somebody's, you know, uh, you know, rel and so if you can't say something decent about the person, you shouldn't say anything at all. You just shouldn't say anything. And here I think David is this tremendous example here. If there were anybody who you think I'm going to write a song about that guy, all right. I mean, this would be like the most rotten country hit that just, you know, I mean, David could have wrote something really brutal to just tear down Saul, and he doesn't do that. Instead, his love covers a multitude of sins. He's not bitter. Instead, he just seeks to find some things to try and show honor. And I, I mean, the heart in this is, uh, you know, incredibly convicting. And 
really something that testifies really of David's character and why God saw the heart that David had in him. So he speaks highly, the beauty of Israel, how the mighty have fallen. Verse 20, tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Again, two of the main five cities of the Philistines. Let the daughters of the Philistines... Excuse me, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Again there, do you notice what David's doing? Like Proverbs 24, he's saying, listen, don't go tell the Philistines what have happened because I don't want them rejoicing over what's happened. Two men of God have died. Many of Israel's soldiers have died. We don't want to see the enemy rejoice over the failures and even the, the, you know, the, the falling out of God's people and that's part of what had happened. And listen, certainly... Ladies and gentlemen, even when, when, when things happen, I think as Christians sometimes, I'm just going to say this because it's the only way to say it, sometimes we just need to shut our mouths when it comes to talking in the world about our grievances with what goes on with other Christians. There are enough reasons the world has to want to criticize us, call us hypocrites, and sometimes as Christians, we're our worst news agency. Look, does stuff happen? Yes. Is there a justifiable reason that it's wrong? Do, do even churches and pastors and ministries make mistakes and sometimes do some selfish... Yeah, yes, I realize all that stuff happens. At the end of the day, this is still the best dysfunctional thing that's going, I'm telling you. There's nothing not dysfunctional. This is the best dysfunctional family right here, so I'll stick with it. But I really think we need to be careful when we're out among the, the Philistines, the uncircumcised, that we're not sharing things like that because all we do is give just ammunition to them to rejoice over what happens among God's people. And, and again, we want love to cover a multitude of sins. We have to really be careful sometimes. It's so difficult and we have to just guard our mouths sometimes. And here, David, just great wisdom. He says, don't let this be known in Gath or in Ashkelon lest they rejoice over men of God having fallen. Verse 21, it says, O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you nor fields of offerings for the shield of the mighty is cast away there. Again, he's sort of kind of curse, cursing Gilboa because that's where these men had died at. The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. Again, in that day, they would usually have wooden shields many a times or, or metal shields then covered with leather and then they would put oil on the leather so that when an arrow or a spear or a sword would hit the shield, it would glance off it. And he's saying here, the, the shield of Saul is no longer anointed with oil. The idea is it's become covered with dirt because he's been taken over it's no longer effective from the blood of the slain from the fat of the mighty the bow of Jonathan did not turn back speaking of Jonathan's courage he was a man who went into battle and like a battle hardened soldier he was just a soldier that would not turn back he wasn't going to run from the battle he was a man of courage he was going to fight the Lord's battles and if that meant dying he would die but he wasn't going to retreat he wasn't going to abandon his comrades on the field. He wasn't going to turn away in fear. And he didn't turn back and he lost his life. The sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives. Again, speaking highly of them. And in their death, they were not divided. Father and son dying together on the same battlefield. They were swifter than eagles. Stronger than lions. That, of course, just poetic language. Speaking of their military power that they were a successful military force. They had created probably one of the, uh, obviously, you know, most efficient efforts of Israel ever militarily because they were the first, really, dynasty, so therefore they brought really the first strong military uh, in a collective way on the heels of 
Joshua and so forth, those battles, Israel kind of came together under the throne of King Saul and actually began to fight battles with David leading them out and so forth as well. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, he says, who clothe you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. So he refers to the, some of the luxurious living, the economic prosperity. Again, something else that Saul, as a part of his reign, did bring. He brought some economic prosperity to the people. He's, again, you may not have liked your king. You may not have liked him, but, but he did bring some luxury and prosperity economically into your lives and what he did. Again, verse 25, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. Again, third time, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perish. So again, this continuous reference to the mighty having fallen, again, the, the sadness of it. And then verse 26 here, David just really referencing again how his heart was so distressed because of Jonathan. Again, the camaraderie. Notice he says, my, I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. I mean, the brotherhood, the camaraderie that these two men shared as they fought in battles together, as they, again, risked their necks together. And again, there's something that happens. I mean, something that for those of us who've, honestly, who've never been in military combat, for those of us who've never, I believe, been, you know, perhaps a part of law enforcement, there's something that, that gets established in those environments when people go out and they put their lives on the line and they serve together and they protect each other and they, they work in ways in conjunction and they realize their lives are interdependent. There's a bond. There's something that gets formed there that is very deep, that is, that is very intimate among them, the camaraderie that's just shared is an experience of that. And David and Jonathan came to know that as, as two friends, a brotherhood among them. And he says to him, your love, he says, it, it was surpassing the love of women. Again, almost esteeming in the sense of saying, even the, the depth of intimacy and love that can be experienced between perhaps a, you know, a, a woman and a man as, as a mother and a child or a husband and a wife, he says, even that, Jonathan, he says, the depth of what we experienced was even greater than that. Now listen, of course, there are those who want to look for you know, proof texts that unfortunately this is one of the texts that those who are part of the homosexual community try and use for their agenda to say, see, there you go. There's a reference that David and Jonathan, they, they had something special going on and, and they actually had a homosexual love for one another. Listen, first of all, that is a complete perversion of what the text is referring to there. Second of all, let me just say this. Read on. In, in verse 2, two verses later of chapter 2, it references David's, not just wife, wives. David did not have a homosexual lifestyle. David had not only a wife, he had wives. David w had relationships with women. There was nothing homosexual or perverse. That is a stretching of the text. It's often been said before, if you torture any text long enough, you can get it to confess to whatever you want. And that's what you got to do. You don't have to torture the text there to get it to confess that. Again, as well, let me say this. David writes so much about the law of the Lord, the law of the Lord. Read his Psalms, his love for the law of the Lord and a fear for the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord said that homosexual behavior 
was inappropriate. It was not God's design. David was a man who loved the law of the Lord. So it's just a, a sad, tragic perversion of David here expressing really what is such a beautiful thing, a biblical manifestation that two men can love each other deeply. Listen, God help us. One of the biggest problems is men is half the time we don't know how to have relationships. Give me a little help here. Women are incredible relationships. Men struggle with relationships. And now here the Bible holds before us this beautiful example of two battle-hardened, tough, masculine individuals who loved each other and were brothers and had a bond and a kinship and this very beautiful example of men who were strong, masculine men, but yet they also had this intimacy and this brotherhood and camaraderie. And we want to defile that. To me, that's such a... A sad thing that can be done. It's a beautiful example of this. Well, look as chapter 2 opens. It tells us it happened after this. Now David realizes, okay, God, what do I do? That David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, Well, where shall I go up? What do I do first? Where do I go? And he said, Go to Hebron. So, David realizes now the throne is vacant. I'm called to be the king of Israel. All right, Lord. But notice, he doesn't just rush up and get himself a little you know, political campaign going and say, okay, what do we need to do? The first thing he does is he prays. Again, Mark, David was a man of prayer. He's a man after God's own heart. He says, Lord, I know what's supposed to happen, but what's the right timetable, God? What's the right way to go about it? So he inquires of the Lord, shall I go up to the cities of Judah, to the southern area from where he was from? And the Lord said, David, go. Now's the time to go. Go up, he says. Then he says, okay, well, where, Lord? I need direction. First he wanted permission. God gave him permission. Then he wanted direction. And then God gave him direction. Go to Hebron and God will give us permission. If we ask first, we want to make sure, do I have your permission, God? Or don't I have permission? Is this the right time or not the right time? And if so, God, I need direction. Where do I do it? Where do I start? How do I go about it? He says, go to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives, Ahinoam and Abigail, the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. Remember 1 Samuel 25, we saw that story. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household, so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And the men of Judah came there and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So notice, over the southern area of Israel, David now actually ascends to the throne and we'll see it's a gradual ascension to his rulership. In many of the ways, I think it's a picture of how a lot of times there's a gradual ascension to the rulership of Jesus reigning properly on our hearts. David was the rightful king. He was the proper king. He was the one who was supposed to be ruling and reigning, but had been rejected for a long time. And listen, Jesus is the rightful king. He's the reigning king. He's God's king and the one who's supposed to be ruling and reigning on the throne of our hearts. But sometimes it's a process a little bit to let Jesus take over territory the way that he should. So David initially, we're going to see, he reigns in the southern area of Judah for about seven plus years or so, and then ultimately the rest of his reign, he reigns over the entire nation. We'll see that as we go a little more into Second uh, Samuel chapter 2. But David now is crowned anointed king of Israel, and they told David, saying, the men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul, and David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, 
and said, You are blessed of the Lord, for you've shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay this, you this kindness because you've done this thing. Now, therefore, verse 7, we'll conclude here. He says, Let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So notice what one of the first things David does. Again, the men of Jabesh-Gilead, remember we read, they were the ones when Saul's body had been hung on the wall. Remember they decapitated his body and they hung his body on the wall to just desecrate him and to humiliate him. And the men of Jabesh-Gilead, remembering what Saul had done for them, rescuing them from an enemy when he was first anointed the king of Israel, they went and in a dignified way took down his body, brought it back, and just in a very, again, dignified way, put his body to rest, his physical frame. And David now speaks to them. He sends a message to them right away. And he says, look, you are blessed of the Lord. You've shown kindness to Saul. And he says, now may the Lord show kindness to you. And he says, I'm going to repay you kindness for what you've done. What's David doing here? I don't think this is David just kind of trying to get people on his side. I think what this is, is that this is David realizing, hmm, those people from Jabesh Gilead who just went and buried Saul, they may be thinking, oh man, when David finds out what we did for his enemy, we're going to be the first people he comes and executes. Because Saul made his life miserable. And we just kind of showed a little bit of favor to Saul by going and burying his body. And, and, and so they're probably perhaps maybe hesitant. And David says, listen, let me put your fears to rest. I agree with what you did. I think what you did was a good thing and a godly thing. And so he shows love to them to encourage them and to show them, listen, you took the high road. And he says, that's what it's going to be like when I'm reigning as king. We're going to do things the right way. We're going to take the high road, not the low road, and we're going to do what honors the Lord. And he encourages them that the kindness they showed would now be repaid to them. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen, listen, when we have to choose which side we err on, can I encourage you? Err on the side of grace. Because if you err on the side of grace and you show kindness, you can't lose. Because the rightful King Jesus will always reward you in return if you do such. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God for this next section of scripture, this new book that we can begin together of Second Samuel. Lord, the lessons that we can see already beginning to blossom from David's heart and character and, and for his life ahead, Lord. Uh, we pray that the lessons that are there would just bring great depth of character to our lives as well. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are King of kings, Lord of lords, and may we now bow our knee and worship to you as our rightful King. In Jesus' name we ask and pray, amen. Let's worship.